Welcome to the podcast on Becoming. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. You probably know that On Becoming is on Twitter at On Becoming Pod and Instagram at On Becoming Podcast. Our email address is onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. If you have any comments or suggestions, please send them our way. If you find the podcast helpful to your own journey of becoming, please consider following or subscribing to the podcast. If you'd like to support us, please do so at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast or paypal at onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks to those of you who've subscribed or followed us, to those who've written, and to those who've decided to support us. A few months ago, I started reading a book I found both helpful and a little disturbing. It's called The Body Keeps the Score, Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma and the author is Bessel A. van der Kolk. You can probably get an idea of the basic thesis of the text just from the title. The author claims, and then provides, I think, a great deal of evidence, that trauma, the trauma that we experience in early life, or for that matter, even later in life, doesn't simply go away. Instead, it produces changes in our brains that are the result of that trauma. Although van der Kolk focuses particularly on children who've been abused or soldiers suffering from PTSD and rape victims, he recognizes that people are affected by trauma from natural disasters, wars, and accidents. All of us have experienced trauma in our lives in various forms and to various degrees, and most of us think that we can simply get beyond it. But the reality is not nearly so simple in many cases. Here's what van der Kolk says about the depth of trauma. While we all want to move beyond trauma, the part of our brain that is devoted to ensuring our survival deep below our rational brain is not very good at denial. Long after a traumatic experience is over, it may be reactivated at the slightest hint of danger and mobilize disturbed brain circuits and secrete massive amounts of stress hormones. These post-traumatic reactions feel incomprehensible and overwhelming. To give a practical example, bullying that occurs in childhood often results in long-lasting psychological impact. It's estimated that up to 20% of children experience bullying growing up. One study on children who had been bullied concludes that 57% of them experienced signs of PTSD. Of course, bullying goes on among adults, often in the workplace. I've worked at two institutions where bullying was unfortunately common, or perhaps I should say rampant. In the British press, there have been recent articles on the phenomenon of bullying that takes place in the academic world, that is, even at universities that we consider to be famous. It often involves senior colleagues bullying junior colleagues, though bullying takes many more forms than merely that. I've said before that the academic world, despite all the claims of academic freedom, is one of the most conservative institutions in society. I realize that many of you probably find this a bit surprising because we tend to think of tenure as protecting academics who put forth controversial views. By the way, controversial views are often simply views that are simply new and different, not necessarily controversial in the sense of being extreme. When I was first starting out in the academic world, I assumed that those of us who taught and did research were interested in getting at the truth. 
But my worry at this point is that too many academics simply want to proclaim that they're right and their opponents are dead wrong, sometimes even if they know that their opponents are actually correct. My own experience is that when academics say something significantly different from what everyone else believes, there's usually enormous resistance. I mentioned that I've spent two years as a visiting scholar at the New School in New York City due to the kindness of Richard Bernstein. A recent article in The New Yorker profiled him as he was about to hold his final class. In that profile, I noticed what Hannah Arendt had written to him many years ago. She said all academic thinking, whether right, left, or middle, is conservative in the extreme. Nobody wants to hear what he hasn't heard before. Again, this may sound surprising, even absurd. Aren't academics committed to the truth, wherever it might be? Actually, not quite as much as you'd like to think. Thus, I believe she got it entirely correct. For all the talk about academic freedom, there's actually not very much freedom to deviate from the philosophical orthodoxy. I've mentioned that there's a distinction between continental philosophy, which is something I mainly do, and analytic philosophy, in which I've been trained and still work today. In departments that have faculty members representing both of these different sides or perspectives, there is often subtle and sometimes highly overt bullying, which can come from both sides, though being the lone continental professor or the lone analytic professor in the department often means that it's directed at you. In this episode, I want to focus on the fact that it is our emotional or intuitive brain that registers trauma, which means that it isn't easy to get over. For those who've listened to various episodes of the podcast, that point is probably not going to sound very surprising. We tend to think that our rational brain or neocortex is in control of how we feel about something or how we define it or how we think about it. Yet if Gautam was right that our most basic knowledge of the world comes down to that which we know intuitively, then it tends to reason that such trauma affects us deeply. By the way, just to be clear, Gadamer's account of human rationality continues to be confirmed by neuroscientists and moral psychologists. Our intuitive brain, or right brain, is where we process emotions and also where we make moral judgments. By definition, experiences that are traumatic are unbearable. One feels abandoned, frightened, threatened, or rejected. We may be able to use our rational brain to try and make sense of that trauma, but a rational or logical explanation often fails to convince our intuitive brain. Moreover, often there simply is no rational reason for what happens to us, nothing that to justify it in any meaningful sense. Most important, trauma is by nature overwhelming. Its effects are greater than what the brain can process, which means that trauma cannot be properly coded in our memories. The result is we often feel out of control regarding our reactions to trauma. Van der Kolk points out that, and I'm quoting, survivors of trauma often begin to fear that they are damaged to the core and beyond redemption. Given this prospect, those who experience trauma frequently do whatever they can to erase its memory or deaden its impact. Memories of trauma are often deeply suppressed, sometimes so deeply that it takes years of therapy before someone can even remember and acknowledge the event that caused the trauma. Victims often self-medicate with drugs, alcohol, and things like self-mutilation. But Vanderkolk points out that boys abused by Roman Catholic priests 
often medicate by becoming obsessed with working out and projecting an extremely macho image. He points out that there's a correlation between being morbidly obese and having been raped or sexually abused as a child. It's no wonder, then, that suffering from trauma often leads to rage or a sense of helplessness and a feeling that one's life has been so significantly altered that a return to normal doesn't seem possible. Interestingly enough, Venterkolk has nothing to say about religious abuse. Indeed, if you do a little Googling, you'll discover that there are various articles online that talk about religious abuse. But it is, I think, very fairly to say, a phenomenon that is massively understudied. As to why this is the case, I think the problem is almost self-explanatory. Those who consider themselves religious may be very reluctant to admit to abuses in their own churches or denominations, though they might be willing to admit that this sort of thing happens in cults or groups that they don't like. Those who are decidedly secular and already think religion is harmful are likely to respond something like, ah, just one more reason why religion is a blight on civilization. Those of you who heard me talk about what religion actually is realize that neither of these responses are of much use, either to pretend that such abuse doesn't exist or to claim that all religion is inherently abusive is equally problematic. Neither view does justice to the actual phenomenon, and both can fail to achieve anything like justice for those who have been abused. If you've experienced religious trauma, know that you are not alone. One of the purposes of this podcast is to help those of us who've been harmed by religion in one way or another. The single best resource I have found is a book by Dr. Marlene Winnell titled Leaving the Fold, A Guide for Former Fundamentalists and Others Leaving Their Religion. Winnell grew up as a missionary kid in Taiwan. She writes that she started having questions about the fundamentalist or evangelical background in which she grew up around age 16. By a decade later, she no longer referred to herself as a Christian. She became a licensed therapist who deals primarily with patients who grew up in similar ways. Winnell is the person who coined the term religious trauma syndrome. The closest thing to that idea found in the DSM, that's the guide that psychologists and psychiatrists use for diagnostic purposes, is religious or a spiritual problem. Yeah, yeah, that's the official title, religious or spiritual problem. Not exactly very specific. However, therapists often use the unofficial term scrupulosity to describe symptoms that manifest obsessive compulsiveness of a religious sort. But Winnell's terminology, which I will refer to as RTS, provides a much better way of talking about the hugely varying symptoms that religious trauma can produce. Winnell claims that RTS is best thought of as a form of complex PTSD. And complex PTSD can be defined as, and now I'm going to quote from, uh, from her, a psychological injury that results from protracted exposure to prolonged social and or interpersonal trauma with a lack or loss of control, disempowerment, and in the context of either captivity or entrapment, that is, the lack of a viable escape route for the victim. As I say, that definition comes from an article written by Winnell, um, co-authored with Valerie Tarico 
It's titled The Sad, Twisted Truth About Conservative Christianity's Effect on the Mind. Another way of describing complex PTSD is that it is something ongoing. Normally, PTSD results from a traumatic experience, such as a tragic accident or fighting in a war. As soldiers often discover when they return home, it is difficult to deal with what has happened to them, which means they often find that they can only really talk to their buddies who went through a similar experience. In contrast, complex PTSD is something chronic or ongoing. While Winnell thinks that religious trauma is indeed abusive, she is, I think, extraordinarily even-handed in her analysis. For instance, her book has an entire chapter detailing ways in which fundamentalist religion can be positive, though she is careful to point out that even these positive things may be accompanied by less positive things. She closes that chapter by writing something that I found extremely poignant and true to my own experience, and I want to quote what she says. In writing this book, I had to look up the verses I quoted from the Bible to get the wording exact. As I did this, I gradually became aware of interesting feelings. I found myself turning the delicate pages of the Bible with care and affection, the way I did many years ago. The pages felt precious as I smoothed them out. I read whole chapters in the Gospel of John and was moved by the words of Jesus at the Last Supper. Suddenly I recognized my experience. It was like reading old letters from a lover I had left. The old bond was still present, the feelings of attachment and love, and a wave of sadness, a strange sense of betrayal. Those words resonated so deeply with me. I can't count the number of students I've had who were either forced out of evangelicalism, what I mean by that is their community made it clear that they weren't welcome, or felt that they simply couldn't stay in that world. Sometimes one can't stay because one finds too many things that one can no longer believe. Other times one can't stay because the pain of having been hurt is just too great, and attending a service has the effect of re-traumatization. All three of those things are true for me personally. Another important author on this subject is Janet Heimlich, who's written a book titled Breaking Their Will, Shedding Light on Religious Child Maltreatment. If you're really interested in reading more because you've experienced religious trauma, let me suggest you start with Winnell, since I think she handles this subject in a gentler way. Heimlich's analysis centers on three aspects of religious groups that are often harmful to children. The first is authoritarianism, in which there is a rigid hierarchy. I've mentioned something like that in talking about Bill Gothard's idea that Christ is the head of the church and the father is the head of the family. A basic feature of authoritarianism is that it simply isn't open to question, which is to say that it often really can't even be discussed as an actual thing. Let me try and put this a different way. My own experience tells me that the reason evangelicals are so critical of Foucault has much less to do with his sexuality. Yes, he was gay, so of course that's an easy way of making him seem wrong or bad. Much less to do with that than with his point that power is inevitable and inescapable. Evangelical leaders, I think, often 
think of themselves as kindly parents who are just trying to help young people grow up to be good persons. They're not very happy, though, when someone points out the power dynamics in such a relationship. At the evangelical school where I taught, the power dynamics were complex and enormously controlling since they extended to virtually everything about one's life. But it wasn't something one could discuss publicly. The second factor is isolation or separatism. Homeschooling is an obvious example of this. It prevents children getting access to the source of information known as the public school. Yet you are probably well aware that many megachurches attempt to create an environment that caters for many human needs, such as groups for all ages, gyms, coffee shops, cafeterias, etc. Dear listener, I am not against churches doing such things, but I do worry that some churches or leaders are either directly or indirectly trying to disconnect their members from the world at large. I've mentioned before that many evangelical institutions once forbade their adherents from going to movies or plays. The reason that was given for these kinds of things is that they're worldly, and since the term worldly is bad on its own, it didn't need any further explanation. However, it's not too hard to see that going to movies or plays allows one to discover that there's a broader world out there with different choices and possibilities. The third factor is fear. That can take the form of talk about a coming apocalypse or simply about hell, perhaps the ultimate fear-provoking thing. There are also these things called hell houses, the first of which was set up in 1972 by Jerry Falwell Sr. It was called the Scare Mare. These are haunted houses that spring up for Halloween that scare children with such things as extramarital sex, gambling, abortion, same-sex marriage, and date rape by way of gruesome depictions of such things. Religious adherents are told that unless they stay close to their religious group, these horrors await them. If you're an adult listening to this, you might think, well, that's not that scary. But imagine a young child who has no other frame of reference than what is being presented. I think most children would be truly terrified by such things. You can see that none of this constitutes a rational argument, which is why Wanell and Terrico say the following. It's important to remember that this mindset permeates to a deep subconscious level. This is a realm of imagery, symbols, metaphor, emotion, instinct, and primary needs. Nature and nurture merge into a template for viewing the world, which then filters every experience. The template selectively allows only the information that confirms their model of reality, creating a subjective sense of its own veracity. If you were presented with rational arguments for such beliefs, you would at least have the resources of rationality to argue against it. But instead, these beliefs are indoctrinated into children long before they have the resources to deal with them. Part of this has to do simply with brain development. If one is taught such things as a child, it may be very difficult to question them as an adult. You might think, can't they just walk away? That's a reasonable thought, at least on the surface. But the reality is that ideas that become part of our intuitive brain are very hard to shake. Although Nietzsche was writing long before neuroscience, 
I've mentioned before they had a remarkably good grasp of how all of this works in practice. In previous episode, I've mentioned that he differentiates between what he calls great reason, the reason of the body, and little reason, the reason of the mind or the rational brain. I've also mentioned that Nietzsche claims that our most sacred convictions, the unchanging elements in our supreme values, are judgments of our muscles. Similarly, he writes, there's more reason in your body than in your best wisdom. Put simply, our intuitively based beliefs are much stronger and more convincing than those based on what we usually call reason, or what Nietzsche calls little reason. But even more important, Nietzsche recognizes that convincing our rational brain may well leave our intuitive brain unconvinced. This is why he claims that to move forward, and now I'm quoting from him, we have to learn to think differently. It's interesting, he italicizes, learn to think differently. And the quote continues, in order at last, perhaps very late on, to attain even more, to feel differently. If Nietzsche's right about this, changing how we feel isn't easy. This is one of the significant limits of talk therapy. Van der Kolk says that the challenge for those who've been traumatized is this. How can people gain control over the residues of past trauma and return to being masters of their own ship? As much as I would like to agree with Van der Kolk, I don't think any of us are ever truly masters of our own ship, a view that proposes far too strong a conception of human agency. For many of us, the goal of moving beyond trauma is simply to find a way to cope in a way that's not self-destructive and doesn't involve trying to pretend that it never really happened. And here's where we get to the nub of the matter. There's, alas, only so much that we can do to change the feelings we experience as the result of trauma. Just recently, you probably have heard that E.J. and Carol won a civil lawsuit against Donald Trump for sexual assault. Here's what her lawyer, Roberta Kaplan, said as part of the lawsuit. As a result of the pain and suffering caused by Trump's sexual assault, Carol has not been able to sustain a romantic relationship since the day Trump raped her, nor has she engaged in sex with anyone since that time. Carol has had difficulty trusting men and cannot maintain an intimate relationship. Alas, there simply isn't any kind of rational argument that justifies or makes sense of rape or other kinds of abuse, physical and psychological. But despite this irrationality and senselessness, victims of trauma often feel in some way responsible for what's happened to them, a fact that's only made worse by the tendency of society to blame victims. Further, many victims feel so damaged that they conclude that nothing can be done. In the article I mentioned by Winnell and Tarico, they quote someone anonymously who you would think would be able to get over such trauma. Here's, here's that quote. Here I am, a 51-year-old college professor, still smarting from the wounds inflicted by the righteous when I was a child. It is a slow, festering wound, one that smarts every day in some way or another. I thought I would leave all of that God-loves, God-hates stuff behind. But not so. 
Such deep and confusing fear is not easily forgotten. It pops up in my perfectionism, my melancholy mood, the years of being obsessed with finding the assurance of personal salvation. I suspect that many listening have been affected by perfectionism. Although this can be a natural trait that is not connected to religion, it is particularly common among evangelicals. I myself have been a perfectionist, and that's probably not going to be something I'll ever be able to leave behind. Along these lines, I was speaking with a fellow Nietzsche scholar. Although he was indirect in his comments, that is, he didn't specifically address me personally, he scoffed at people who took Nietzsche's early expressions of religious piety seriously. I'm clearly one of those people, for my book Pious Nietzsche is an attempt to argue that Nietzsche never strayed all that far from his religious roots. I don't think Nietzsche ever simply leaves the God question behind. Rather, it may remains with him throughout his life. Nietzsche's contemporary, a friend and more than that, Lou Salome, points out that Nietzsche remained obsessed with God throughout his life. Here's what she writes. Only when we enter Nietzsche's last phase of philosophy will it become completely clear to what extent the religious drive always dominated his being and his knowledge. His various philosophies are for him just so many surrogates for God which were intended to help him compensate for a mystical God ideal outside of himself. His last years, then, are a confession that he was not able to do without this ideal. And precisely because of that, time and again, we come upon his impassioned battle against religion, belief in God, and the need for salvation because he came precariously close to them. Yet it's not just that Nietzsche's philosophies function as surrogates for God. Nietzsche actually gives us at least two gods who are surrogates for the god to whom the young Fritz once prayed as a child. They are Dionysus and life. Moreover, Nietzsche later comes to contrast what he terms Dionysus versus the crucified as two different types of religion or two religious types. Yes, that's his terminology. Whereas the follower of the crucified, in other words, the Christian, denies life, the follower of Dionysus affirms life. Thus, as surprising as it might seem, Nietzsche ultimately comes to call his own belief system a faith that is, and now I'm quoting, the highest of all possible faiths, one that he says he baptizes with the name of Dionysus. Van der Kolk makes it clear that trauma makes it impossible for many people to move on with their lives. When people are compulsively and constantly pulled back into the past, to the last time they felt intense involvement and deep emotions, they suffer from a failure of imagination, a loss of mental flexibility. Without imagination, there is no hope, no chance to envision a better future, no place to go, no goal to reach. The problem is that the past, rather than fading into the background, becoming merely something that happened to us a long time ago, takes on the character of being perpetually present. To quote again from that article by Winnell and Tarico, Christian teachings that sound true when they're embedded in the child's mind at this tender age can feel true for a lifetime. Even decades later, former believers who 
intellectually reject these ideas can feel intense fear or shame when their unconscious mind is triggered. I want to close today's episode with a brief look at an article titled The Invisible Demographic in Psychology Today that appeared in 2020. Its author, Pesach Eisen, points out that the phenomena of religious trauma, along with the phenomena of deconversion, have received very little attention from psychologists. He writes this, Research and dialogue on the latter are still sorely lacking. As a result, the mental health field as a whole currently has a poor understanding of this niche de- demographic, leaving many professionals culturally incompetent when it comes to helping those leaving organized religion. Thus, it's vital that we increase awareness and gain a better understanding of this lived experience. Now, that's one problem. The other problem is the one that we've been considering, namely the difficulty of just walking away or saying goodbye to one's religious beliefs. And here's a quote from him again. There's a common misconception that members of organized religion or fundamentalism always have a choice of leaving. The reality is they often cannot do so without paying a price. Not only are many traumatized by this existence, those leaving or even just contemplating leaving for whatever reason, more often than not experience tremendous psychological, emotional, financial, logistical, educational, legal, familial, social, and sometimes life-threatening challenges. They're frequently mocked, misunderstood, ostracized, gaslit, belittled, pathologized, shunned, fired, alienated from their children, and in the most extreme cases, even killed or driven to suicide, oftentimes at the hands of their own flesh and blood. I hope you can see that either remaining or leaving in the wake of trauma usually results in further trauma. The idea that you can just walk away without any further repercussions is, alas, just naive. One of the principal problems with such a vision is that when one grows up in a religious environment, one becomes part of a long-standing tradition that becomes one's own tradition. It's very hard to leave traditional structures, for leaving involves a huge cognitive and emotional upheaval that could be likened to a divorce. My point here is simply that even if you decide that the religious community of which you're a part is abusive, leaving may not be so easy. Among the possible responses, one may be, to quote Eisen, mocked, misunderstood, ostracized, gaslit, belittled, pathologized, shunned by the very community that used to be the place that seemed like home. Or to put this another way, if you decide to leave, you might very well have some uncomfortable thanksgivings, or else very lonely ones. That's all for today's episode. In the next episode, I will turn to the question of the extent to which moving on is possible and what that might look like. If you found today's episode helpful or useful for your own development, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast or through paypal.com or the PayPal app. The username for both of those is our email address, onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. Or just follow us or click subscribe.
I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, and I hope you'll join us for the next episode.